0: hello everybody and welcome to the 357th episode of mtg fast finance the podcast that's ringing in the new year with a flurry of cardboard cravings mtg fast finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of magic the gathering finance collection management and speculation i'm your host james chilcott aka at MDG Critic on twitter my co-host is derek the dark mage at OkoAssassin on twitter and we're here to help you
1: folks make and save money playing our favorite game magic the gathering good to be back james happy new year it is exciting to be back uh talking world of magic in 2023 i think it's we're ready for a good year and can't wait to see magic
0: collapse <laughs> this is the if you believe twitter socials and reddit posts then this is it this is the last chance we get at all this i love the Make it a good one
1: it's it's amazing how a little bit of time and history with an issue gives you that that perspective right like how many times over the years have you heard about magic dying <laughs> it is every every six months the for the entire time all the time criticism's good say magic's dying is <laughs> Always an overreaction. But with that, uh, again, happy to be back. And before we jump in, I do want to remind listeners that the show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to plan your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby.
0: MDG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5, that's the number 5, during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Derek, what is on our
1: agenda for the first show of 2023? All right, well, we're going to start off with our four segments. First off, we are going to kick things off with the MTGO Metagame Weekend Review. Then we're going to move up to segment two, where we talk about the top movers of the week and discuss why we believe these cards saw significant gains. Then we're on to segment three, our cards to watch, where we'll share what we have our eyes on at the moment. And then finally, we'll wrap things up with segment four, where we'll discuss our topics of the week. And we're going to finish up our uh, annual review, looking back in the data from uh, the other casters that are not you this time, as we covered that last week, if folks want to hear that, they can listen to, on episode uh, 356. And we're also going to talk about a, a little announcement from WotC about some cancellations of various projects and what that means for Magic overall. So with that, why don't we move on to the MTGO Metagame Week in Review. We are back looking
0: at online tournaments this week. We've got the Modern Super Qualifier that actually went Down on December 26th, Boxing Day, Um, they were not posting the information over the holidays, so this has just been recently released. Fairly straightforward top eight for the most part. In second place, we had Blue Red Murktide. They were also fifth, sixth, and seventh. I think it's pretty safe to say that that is the most popular deck in the format, at least in the MTGO challenges overall, if you look at the last four months or so. Um, we also had Creativity Combo in third, Black Red, Red Scam in fourth, and moth Combo in eighth, all, you know, ever-present uh, contenders uh, for most of 2022. Now, the first place list is certainly the most interesting. It's a Jeskai Breach deck that has four Underworld Breach in it, and probably explains why I sold out of Foil Underworld Breach and Foil Extended Art Underworld Breach, and also sold some English and Japanese Extended Arts, all for major, major profits. Uh, love to see a obviously powerful card go under the radar for long enough to stay cheap and then turn into a massive win when it eventually hits a top eight like this.
1: Yep, it's uh, it's moving on Magic Online too. It's everywhere. Uh, it's a good card, as we've talked about in the past. And yeah, not too surprising. I you know One thing I did notice that a lot of these um, Jeskai lists have Brotherhood's End in the sideboard. Not a ton of copies, but there were seven decks in the top 32 that all had one or two copies of Brotherhood's End, which is the new Brother's Ward card that gives you the flexibility of doing either three damage to each creature or Planeswalker and Planeswalker, uh, or destroy all artifacts with mana value three or less for two red and a colorless. Um, That's one that I think we talked about a little bit during the previous season. Because of the flexibility, it's a little bit more uh, useful compared to some of the other previous iterations of that card. So It was nice to see that um, in the sideboard of a bunch of lists. And I'll be curious to see about that going forward. Not a huge impact on probably paper prices, but definitely something worth keeping an eye on. You know what's an interesting include in this
0: list, the Jeskai Breach list, is that the creatures are four Dragons Rage Channeler and four Ragavan. No big surprise there. They are highly efficient threats. But you have two Baral Chief of Compliance, which allows you to do two things. A, reduces the cost of uh, instants and sorceries by one and uh, also every time you counter something you get to draw and discard now the thing is you only on the countering side of things you only have two remand in the main and on the reducing spell cost side of things the only things you can reduce are metamorphose and remand because lightning bolt consider an unholy heat are already one casting cost expressive iteration can't be reduced by one because it's blue and a red so it also reduces Grape Shot and Prismatic Ending, but they've only got one and two copies of those, respectively. I, I'm very curious to hear from the the pilot as to why this is an important card in here. I guess you breach off, and you want to make sure that your Metamorphoses yeah. are you know, positive?
1: Yeah, I guess that's it, because I mean, it's not that you only have four copies of metamorphose it's that you're playing it out of the yard over and over and over again, so... To draw that, more cards yeah. and cast more spells. Uh, and, I mean, the Remand, too, you could hit your own card in a pinch
0: i mean it very much it very much looks like on your breach turn you're looking to bolt your opponent out of the game right because or grape shot because yeah, grape shot. only yeah. the two bolts and grape shot have a chance of you know say your opponent's at six to nine life by that point or something after taking early beats from channeler and Ragavan this is kind of the only way that you're gonna get
1: get the distance because unholy heat can only hit creatures and planeswalkers, so that doesn't help you any. Yeah, and this doesn't have mox amber. So usually this setup as a reminder to listeners who've heard about it from us in the past is to have mox amber, grindstone, kind of keep playing your mox amber, keep milling out your deck, building up, you know, your count, building up a mana every time you're doing that, and then you have enough to, you know, do whatever finisher you have. This is yeah, very different from that, uh, totally different package. And this one actually has the full four Underworld Breach, which usually I think we see two or three. It's usually not all four,
0: I believe. Yep, so fairly interesting uh, implementation of that deck. Now, over in Pioneer, things were a little spicier. Uh, we had Blue-Red Arc Light in second, Black-Red Midrange in third, Grease Fang in fourth. That's all kind of standard, par for the course. Uh, what I don't see here is any mono-green lists, black-red sacrifice and eighth, and then the other half of this is all, f- is all fire. You have Coco Angels in first with four Kayla's Reconstruction, a card that, I, to my knowledge, has not seen significant play in Pioneer up until this point. The Coco Angels list I play against all the time on Arena. It's got to be one of the most popular decks in Historic. But hasn't broken into Pioneer high-level tournaments, as far as I, I'm aware, more than a very small handful of times this year. So very interested, interesting to see it in first here.
1: Yeah, I've seen it around. Um, I know I even saw a little bit of paper play during uh, the regional qualifiers and things like that. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely not as prevalent as some of the other decks. Uh, I do love that even in the Angels list, they were able to get a Basaju in the... Uh, in the land count i love that just playing a couple brushlands some over uh, overgrown farmlands and temple gardens to splash green and be able to play things like that and a little bit of uh, tech out of the sideboard like they have full four uh shapers sanctuary which is the one where if your creature gets targeted draw a card your whole deck is creatures that it makes it pretty hard without board wipes to um, handle anything efficiently um, so yeah, kind of cool list. I, you know, it seems like it'd be reasonably priced too. I would think just looking at, oh yeah, this would be a cheap, cheap deck to make. You're just talking about the
0: collected companies. Yeah. Really. Ever Splendid Angel uh, I, is
1: pretty expensive now. Besage you. Yeah.
0: The, um, the, the, I guess the most interesting part here is that the Kayla's reconstructions represent collected companies like five through eight. Yeah. That are worse in the early game and better in the late game because, you know, if you can cast this for seven or eight, if the game has gotten to that stage, you're looking at the top seven cards your library no matter what and then you're putting up to x artifact and or creature cards with mana value three or less from among them onto the battlefield so one of the things that i've i've noticed in play patterns against this deck is i often just completely ignore the first couple of threats and then look to sweep them on turn three or four and get rid of two or three things at once and what they're hoping will happen is that they, after whatever, you know the initial pattern of interactions, they're going to get a couple more things out, then dra- drop a Righteous Valkyrie and get up to enough life that everything's getting plus two, plus two, and then they're going to kill you in one or two turns max. Sure. And this makes it that much easier if, you know, if the Kayla's Reconstruction comes online in the mid to late game and you, you know, Supreme Verdict or anger of the gods or whatever to weigh the first set of angels that they're hoping to put a second set of threats into play that you can't easily handle and put the game away
1: yep and they do have the one uh Nythos in the sideboard so if they get that online with a lot of creatures that would make that coco pretty large now in fifth and sixth place we had mirror image
0: decks that were yorion Fires of Invention, Enigmatic Incarnation decks, where they have four Fires, four Enigmatic Incarnation. These are the ones where you basically get to take an enchantment that's in play and replace it with an enchantment that costs one less from within your deck and put it into play. Uh, I think it's at the end of your turn, if I'm not mistaken. And these are just a big, huge value pile decks where they have all these silver bullets that they can go get to deal with certain situations. And we have seen some iterations of this show up in the last three to six months or so and this seems to be uh, a further evolution of the archetype
1: yep and uh you gotta love any deck that runs Yorion mainboard main board and in the sideboard is <laughs> fine by me <laughs> Yorion decks certainly did some work in the arena cube over the holidays
0: uh, they put they put enough value engine pieces in there that it got real nasty if you couldn't deal with the
1: Yorion. yeah no yeah these decks are very meta dependent i mean yeah, that's that's the one Good and bad thing about them if they're if they're trying to value you out and you're letting them that's great and if uh you know the meta game's a little bit less hospitable to that then they're just kind of spinning their wheels slowly building up value while dying very quickly right so yeah kind of depends but they they obviously have the um, ley lines binding early on to kind of help you know stabilize and you know they keep getting new cards every single set I mean the bitter reunion. Uh, This is the one red, one colorless. When it enters the battlefield, it's an enchantment, discard a card if you do draw two cards. So it essentially cycles, you know, two cards from your hand. But then it provides that, um, you know, easy enchantment on the battlefield that uh, you can use with the the, um, enigmatic incarnation, which is great. uh, But also it can give your creatures haste. So it's a little flexible, things like that. Every set, you get a little bit more of those the deck gets a little bit more powerful which is nice to see
0: curious whether they would make use of displacer kitten if they had access to it that's uh commander legends battle for Baldur's gate card if i'm not mistaken oh, yeah. and it was in the arena cube would probably do a lot of work here Yeah, this, <laughs> that would be every single thing legal. in here is under a battlefield that would be fantastic <laughs> yeah if it was pioneer legal Um, right, so moving along, there was also a blue-white spirits list, which is a little odd, because typically we see Bant spirits as the default for Pioneer, where they want to make use of that collected company as a comeback mechanic. But this blue-white spirits is much more low-slung. They are using uh, Curious, uh, whatever the blue enchantment is, that basically lets them Ophidian up their spirits. And they look like they're trying to get in just fast and furious and put put things
1: away before the opponent can really handle what they're, what they're tabling. Yep, and they, they have the Combat Research is the new version. So Curious Obsession is the main one. That's, That's the other and one. And then um, Combat Research is from Dominary United, and it's essentially another Curious Obsession. Um, what makes this better? So Curious Obsession gives you plus one, one, and then whenever you deal damage, draw a card. Uh, the other one is deal damage draw card oh and you only get the plus one one if it's legendary and it also provides ward one if it's legendary so curious obsession is better because it pumps your creatures no matter what but that combat research is a replacement there used to be another curious obsession type effect but it was one blue one white uh and obviously having it be one blue is infinitely better um so that was a, a pretty big upgrade to this deck i think um, S- still, still hurts if they fatal push. Oh yeah, <laughs> in, but in, in, in response, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're. I mean, fortunately, you're putting out a creature that you know is kind of trash usually. um But there, there's no spell pierces in here. Um, when I guess
0: presumably on turns three and so forth, you can do little tricks like yeah. flash rattle chains and as they try to fatal push the first creature, and then you're like you have serious. Uh, card advantage potential from
1: there on out. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm guessing you put the the curious obsession on turn two aggro lee if you're kinda in the blind and you're playing first and you know you're gonna get a card off of it if you're yeah, you're having to wait. Then maybe you wait till turn three, yeah, drop it, um play have lofty denial and Geist Light snare as kind of protection for it, and then just keep banging in throughout for the win.
0: As has been the case since the days of Rancor. Long yeah, yeah. since past. Uh, sequencing very important in these aggro decks that are trying to pants up and run. All right, so uh, moving right along here over to top paper movers, we've got Dranath Magistrate regular copies that of Icoria going 11 to 14. That's 28% gains or so. This is in almost 80,000 EDH rec decks at this point because it basically prevents you from casting your commander, which <laughs> many players are quite salty about. In our play pods, it's just... Our regular speed bump that you may need to deal with against the white decks uh, with their variety of stacks effects and you know usually any point removal or sweeper will deal with it so i've never considered the card a problem but there is certainly a vocal minority uh, they would love to see it removed from the format we've got rat colony regulars a denominator going four to five dollars that's 25 percent gains on the back of rat hype uh, Mycosynth Lattice out of Darksteel going uh, 49 to 66. This card only has two printings in Battle Bond and Darksteel. Uh, Darksteel was quite some time ago. Battle Bond was a relatively short print run, and that's also several years back. So, this ability to turn everything into an artifact has all sorts of different ways it can be leveraged, especially with all the Artifacts Matters cards we've gotten the last few months. And uh, as a result, I'm not super surprised to see. It gaining some ground. We've also got Fabricate and Greater Good, both of which are out of the Secret Layer Transformers drop that is still posted for sale for another two days as of the the posting the recording of this cast. Now this is an interesting situation because they have shipped units from this Secret Layer before the Secret Layer has finished selling, which to my knowledge is the first time we've seen that. And as a result, we've got some early but likely inaccurate price action on TCG Player because the majority of inventory may not yet have landed or is in the process of landing and getting posted even still the this marks these as cards to keep an eye on because even if they're going to dip later they may be cards that will be targeted yet again down the road in question we have fabricate going from 10 to 14 Uh, in foil version that's a early spike as i said that is very likely i think to retract it features Megatron getting turned into Galvatron, which is pretty cool. There's also Greater Good uh, going 10 to 18 in foil, and again, same kind of situation. We talked about the Night Paladin Surge foils from 40k uh, showing a spike last week, and this week it's the non-foils going at $1.75 to four twenty five. It's a follow-on to... Uh, the surge foil targeting as we discussed 140 percent plus gains still not convinced this is a big enough deal card in edh to be going after these especially in non-foil given that plenty of non-foil 40k inventory has been filtering through distribution lately yeah in what has been deemed uh, a second or third printing of those decks so kind of thing i would lean into selling into as opposed to attempting to ride up to a further plateau we also have Cityscape Leveler, Foil Extended Arts, out of the Brothers War Collector Boosters, going 15 to 38. This is a Mythic that is an only 2,800 EDH rec deck so far, still still a reasonable number, but it's also seeing smatterings of play in all of Standard, Pioneer, and Modern, and I suspect it's likely to be a cube card for some people moving forward as well. So this may be one of those, uh, you know, mid Tier demand mythics that can buck the usual trends uh, of deflating in short order. I think I'm still a seller anywhere near $40 for these because I don't think it's the kind of four, it's not a four of in the situations where it is played. And as a result, I would expect it to fade off these highs in the next three to six months. Yeah.
1: Name non ubiquitous cars that have kept $40 price tags for Extend Art foils recently in the first you know six months i can i can only name a few and they're very good cards um so i'd be a seller of this if it was 20 dollars. that'd be different but at at a big price jump like this and you know i mean i've played with it in like modern tron for example and even like aspiring spike was saying you know this should be a full, like heavily played in that archetype i don't know i think it's i think it's overrated i mean it's good but like it's only okay and you only want at certain times and it's competing against like ugin in those type of builds right and that's a tough spot to be depending on the meta so yeah i think i think it's here it i mean it's doing even work in standard and things like that um it's flashy so people are willing to pay for it but as the next type cycle move comes you know i think this will fade at least back down to 30 if not lower
0: cityscape leveler is i'm just double checking whether it's on cast it is on cast it's it's like like ulamog it's got a cast here so you can't just flip it out of the yard and get the trigger. But you could
1: flip it out of the yard and then attack hasty and get the trigger. Right. So either so way you're it does getting have... a trigger if you cast or if, well, or assuming it gets to attack, but um yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, if it if it's unearthed it certainly will because it has haste off the unearthed.
1: Sure, but they could sh- they could ping it before it attacks.
0: True. And it's also eight to unearth, so it's non trivial. Yeah. It, it's interesting because there was a conversation we were having over the weekend in the Pro trader Discord where I had uh, flagged for people that I went ahead and bought 12 more foil extended art ledger shredders in the, I think it was high 20s, on the basis that it looked to me like the the most likely of two candidates, well, one of two candidates from spring sit, spring and winter sets in 2022, the other one being Fable of the Mirror Breaker, that are so ubiquitously played across so many formats, and in ledger shredders' case as standard as a four of often in murktide Uh, Blue, Red, murktide which we've discussed as possibly the most prominent deck in modern at present. And, you know, there was some pushback from some pro traders that, you know, can this really be the next Underworld Breach, Thassa's Oracle, um, Shadow Spear, Foil Extended Art Rares, where all of those aforementioned cards have gotten up into the 60, 80, you know, Oracle's pushing over 100 right now as a Foil Extended Art Rare that's less than three years old you know, can the formulations of the current collector boosters support those kind of gains? And the point that uh, a couple of the Pro Traders was making were was that if you look at the breakdown of the slots where the foil extended art rares uh, are found in Eldraine and Theros Beyond Death as compared to stuff from mid-late 2022, it seems to suggest that there are more of the foil extended art rares being printed now than there used to be. Now, we don't actually have good math published on what percentage difference is likely to exist, so I've tasked Cliff with coming up with an article in the near future to make those comparisons more clear, and we'll certainly go over the results of that uh, as we get further along. That being said... I think things like Fable and Ledger Shredder are still very safe because their play patterns are even broader than things like Breach and Shadow Spear and, and what have you. So that four of plus EDH demand is likely to lead to strong gains. But it certainly makes me more timid about the mid-tier stuff or the un- undiscovered gems, your Circle of Dreams druids, your and Skydiver thing I go back to all the time. That kind of stuff is likely to languish for a good long time. And when you're looking at a cityscape leveler, you know, foil extended or mythic, you really want it to be a meat hook masker or a great hinge as opposed to a six or a seven out of 10, you know, with moderate play across multiple
1: formats. Yeah. That may or may not last. Yep. I I agree. I, you know, I think um, the foil extended arts in general, we just don't have the time horizon to gauge a lot of them, but... I mean, it does seem clear, especially the rares. I mean, there's just a lot of them, right? And they sell. Their velocity is less, and so I think a lot of them will take a lot of time. Um, yeah, I think with the Ledger shredder specifically, it was so underrated, um, and no one thought it was going to be a big deal. I doubt Watsi realized it either, and so I think that's a good thing in the sense that it's not going to see the two or three times reprint potentially like others. Um, that we've kind of seen them go back to the well on early because they, I don't think they probably realized that it was as good as it was, uh, unlike something like Baseju or Adawara or whatever, where they, they knew when they printed it that that was a very good um, cycle and would need to be reprinted at some point in the you know, two, two to three-year time horizon to keep it reasonably okay.
0: One, one of the interesting things for 2023 is that with Dominaria Remastered's set list fully revealed... The only other major reprint vehicles for the year are Secret Layer, the ever-present threat, but also one that has pretty solid limitations in terms of what they will include there, in terms of total price value and how often they'll give us something like a Blightsteel Colossus, which is not very. Um, they tend to focus on more low to mid-tier cards that are popular or niche, but not necessarily fifty to hundred dollar cards.
1: Yeah, they gave us Ulamog too,
0: which was also 50, so it was surprising they had several yeah. of those. Right, which is why those two drops are, yeah. are very notable and were flagged in the Discord as must-buys. You know, the other only other major reprint uh, set that we're aware of, potentially, is the Lord of the Rings set, which will presumably, because it's straight to modern, have some modern relevant reprints. So it's the kind of thing where, you know, Ledger Shredder has to fade that. But given the development timelines, it seems very unlikely that Ledger Shredder would show up there it's much more likely that you might see additional MH2 reprint threats there. You know, you could yep. see Solitude, Fury, that kind of thing, possibly in there. Although I'm not sure that those development timelines line up either. Um, but beyond that, we don't know of anything that that would, you know, yield a Ledger Shredder throughout the year. So I suspect that that card gets 2023 off and is not really a reprint threat until 2024 or 2025 outside of something like a challenger deck where you would get regular copies. And as a result, I was comfortable moving in on those and looking for them to go, whatever, 30 to 60 plus inside a year to 18 months for that level of S ST tier staple has been relatively reliable so far in premium form. Uh, moving on to finish this top, rem- top paper movers list, we've got Go for the Throat and Maw Lock as f- Surge foils being targeted this week. $1.50 to six fifty dollars on the Go for the Throats. That's in 50k EDH rec decks, although, although a lot of that would be inclusion in pre-cons. And then Maw Lock is only in 3,000 EDH rec, going 10 to 45. Yeah, absolutely sell into that kind of plateau mm-hmm. on something like a Maw Lock, which is certainly relevant for uh, the X Matters, smattering of X Matters commanders, and Lucius Kane, or whatever it is. But, I mean, your Moloch, if you can get out on a Moloch in the 30 to $40 range, you're doing very well. Yep. And take that all day. All right. You want to walk us through the top paper, uh, sorry, the top Magic Online
1: movers of the week? Yeah, it's been a little quiet because they had a, um, so every. You know, a few months, six months or so, they do a all access pass that gives you every Magic card online for twenty five dollars. As a result, people haven't needed to buy a lot of Magic cards because even people like myself who have large collections often purchase it just to make their lives easy when they're playing a lot of Magic over the holidays. Um, so it's pretty timid week, but we did a couple movers. Uh, the first one is, I think, particularly notable. Dragon uh, Rage Channeler is up to. Almost four tickets now, um, and this was a card that we called out in the Discord when it was about 0.2 tickets a piece. Um, so huge gains there, uh, yeah. So I had a stack of about a hundred. You know, it's one of those things where Magic Online. Sometimes you doubt yourself and you go, you know, I have a hundred. I should have a thousand. That's a lot of work. I'm just gonna, you know, call it a day. And usually when you have those thoughts oftentimes the the right answer is just keep buying until you until your stack is so large because you know the the risk is so low on something like this but you know at the time dragon's red trendler was you know one of the top played cards in modern and in legacy and you just look at that and you look at the um uncommons from other master sets which you know just don't get or high premium sets i should say that just don't um have the supply like a a standard legal set and they they often do very well so this is not surprising but i do think it's a good example for those who want to play a buy and holding game on magic online which is a lot more difficult to do this is a a good example of, of one that pays off and pays for many other failed specs along the way so this is like 16 months out
0: from drafting. Did it get did MH2 drafting get relaunched at some three point in the interim?
1: It got launched oh, three wow. times. So yeah, that was one I mean there was a lot of uh, specs that were going to the moon and then they re- relaunched draft to try to tamp down prices, they kind of pulled it back and then the third time they did it everyone said, "Okay, what is the deal?" Like we're, we're out, kind of, you know, so the speculators started to move on for Magic uh, or Modern Horizons 2 at that time. And then ever since, things have kind of been moving up and down, but it's not been crazy spikes along the way. Things like Esper Sentinel, Sentinel though, are getting expensive. That's up to almost 12 tickets now, I believe. Um, dress Down's up to four tickets, 5 tickets. It's five six seven tickets i can't remember you know it goes up and down uh so some of those that were just insanely cheap have started to move up and i think it's only a matter of time till we see things like ignoble hierarch or other you know other things that have been cheap along the way um, start to move up as well as supply just starts to get crunched out of the market now is drc present
0: in treasure chests?
1: Let me see. But this is actually, and those are only rares and mythics. This is an uncommon. So it is actually not in a treasure chest. Yep. At all. Got it. That, that was my question was whether yep.
0: uncommons from MH2 were showing up yep. in treasure chests? Cause I would imagine that would have done a decent job of holding it down. So in future, like when we get to the Lord of the Rings set, presumably there will be some ridiculous uncommon creature that makes its way into modern. And we should be looking for that point two esque entry point, to snap that off as
1: we see that being a four of in multiple archetypes yep i mean and it goes for rares and other things too like nettle uh nettle is one that you know we were buying at point 10 tickets now you know at one point it hit over a tick and now it's like a half a tick or something but those are the type of cards where you know they see broad play they're broadly applicable anything that gets under you know a tenth of a ticket you can buy 10 for a dollar you do do that with the top three or five things uh, oftentimes you're going to get paid um even unholy heat is 0.8 tickets or 0.08 so it's still really cheap but commons like that can even get up to a ticket in the future if they don't see a reprint um which is definitely possible okay Moving on. All right, so we also have uh, Ox of Agonis, which is uh, Theros Beyond Death card, just going from 1.8 to 3.8 uh, for a little over 100% gains. Uh, not really sure what triggered this specifically. It's played in Dredge pretty broadly and some other archetypes, so I think that's just reg- regular play. Um, and then Karn, Scion of Urza, went from about uh, three-quarters of a ticket to almost two for uh, about 150 percent gain and for what i can tell this is based on some 5-0 deck lists that had uh, Karn as a one of in some uh, fringy tron decks uh, but the, you know there are several different versions of it that each had uh, one or two copies so i think that might have just moved moved a little bit of digital cardboard but not a ton of a ton going on there all righty moving on over to cards to watch looks like i am the lonely
0: soldier for the week So I'll just dive right into my two selections. I'm looking at the Arkham Dagson Regular. Again, this is a card that has only been printed twice, once in Cold Snap and once in Double Masters. Regular frame copies are up to $20. There's plenty of pressure from artifact-fueled decks in EDH. Arkham is in only $7,800. But basically any blue Artifacts Matters deck will run this card because they get to swap an artifact in play for a non-creature artifact out of their deck and put it directly into play if they can tap it. If you have something like a Swiftfoot Boots or a Lightning Greaves in play, then you usually get to go to work right away, and it's always been good in the you know Brea builds that I run it in, um, and I'm sure people can run it in various forms of Urza as well. For this to go to 2030 seems pretty likely. The only real threat here would be a secret layer, and I'm suspecting that we don't have a lot of artifact theme secret layers lined up for this year, given that the we're kind of moving on from, from that theme uh, and deeper into the Phyrexian mechanics heading into first half of this year. So Arkham might go the whole year without a reprint, and if that's the case, then I, I think it would be tough for this not to go 20 to 30.
1: So, I was surprised... I looked this up a while ago. The EDH rec numbers, I was surprised to see it only at 7,500. It feels like it should be a lot higher. Do you have any thoughts on why if it's not getting reported in more decks? I,
0: I think it's just that it is... has a v- relatively narrow theme. Sure. Some, something like a, a Shadow Spear can just go a- almost anywhere. As long as you've got creatures to equip it to, it's going to fit into your deck. But... Arkham is really in a I'm fooling around with big artifacts theme, and so I want to sneak a big artifact into play. And there's at least 10 to 15 different commanders where this matters, but not a ton of them are in the top 10 all time. Like if we look at top commanders of the last two years, for instance, Atraxa, Lathril, Yuriko, Erdragon, Kenrith, Edgar Markov, Wilhelm, Prosper, Korvold, and Ishin are the top 10 and none of them care about artifacts. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if any of the artifact commanders were in were in that list, you'd see more of it going on. Now, if we look at the past month, Urza chief artificer is number three after Joda the unifier, and Lathril. And so Urza certainly cares. And you can make an argument that Shurikai cares in, in number eight rank, Mishra is number 12 at present, and Brea is number 14. So there's lots of artifact decks being built at present, which creates that pressure on Arkham that didn't exist over the last two years, right. when most of those artifact-centric commanders had not yet been printed.
1: Alright, fair enough. Yeah, I was surprised. I thought it'd be much higher. Um, so, because I'd looked at, and, you know, the, so my only concern, I agree with the logic, I think my only concern here is that, looking at the price charts, this did spike pretty hard um, when the Brothers War was announced and all the artifact themes were coming out. So... I just worry about a retrace. Um, I, I think, it, and also the best, and also the best returns are now behind you. Right, like this should have right. been called three months ago to get the best ROI possible. If you need a need a copy, I think I would have no problem buying in, considering that you know artifact themes are coming, and so I I doubt it, the gas is going to kind of get let up on this. And it is a mythic from original double masters, so the supply is very low. So even if um, some of the gas gets let off the uh pressure gets off uh you know the kind of gas i I think it it has a pretty low uh, high floor um even after the price increase just because it is such a low supply reprint
0: there's actually a couple of additional points to be made here one is that if it had been just printed in double masters 2022 and say as a rare even if it had seen a price bump i would totally have avoided non-foils just on the basis that it would be so much easier for the market to restock them through buy listing and so forth, and product continuing to be cracked. But nobody's opening Double Masters at this point, and Mythic is much better than Rare in this circumstance when you don't have the four of support from Constructed. This is purely an EDH play, so you got to be aware of that. Um, On the other hand, being a Mythic from original Double Masters that is not present as a borderless version in the VIP packs is a pretty big deal because you don't have those additional copies floating around. That's why you can only find two versions of Arkham Eggson on TCG Player, because it didn't get the borderless treatment there. And so as one of the few Mythics that did not, there's that much less product sitting around, because none of those VIP packs yielded this card out in the borderless slots. Now, it still could have shown up as a foil, I believe, in the VIP packs, And that's probably why the foils are, if I'm not mistaken, actually showing a market price $2 below regular copies.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: But the regular versions would not have been opened there, if I recall correctly. Bottom line, uh, I think you have a window of opportunity here. Uh, I wouldn't fault people for thinking maybe they had missed the boat. And if they're looking for 10 to 30 on something else, that's going to be better than this 20 to 30 here. But I have a feeling you're going to get to ride this up just given what the inventory looks like and the. Low likelihood of a reprint.
1: All right. Sounds good. How about what's your next one?
0: The other one that's I, I'm flagging here is something I've called as a foil extended art play before that was a success. And now I think the time is right to take a look at this as the just the regular extended art uh, non-foils. I'm talking about the Dranith Magistrate that we, talked, that we saw just regular copies going up 30%, 11 to 14 this week. The extended art versions are $15 or so and for these to go 15 to 30 seems kind of like a no-brainer given any amount of time and a lack of reprint in premium form the only way i see this getting a premium this year is going to be secret Lair, and it could totally happen but it might happen this year or it might happen four years from now who knows this is the kind of card they might be a little gun shy to tackle again if they think there's any chance that the um the CAG might go after it, and that's also probably one of the threats that people should be aware of before they spec on it, is that this is the kind of card that has been mentioned in CAG discussions before, where just the fact that it it's a no fun for anyone card, where the person that casts it prevents their opponents only from casting not only their commanders but other things as well because it says your opponents can't cast spells from anywhere other than their hands that's why it affects commanders because they're coming from the command zone but it also stops you from you know snap castering back a instant or sorcery from your yard and you can't cast from exile with prosper all that kind of stuff so magistrate's a big big deal card in edh arkham dags is only in eight thousand decks this is in 10 times more decks in a much shorter period of time so S tier staple for sure in this format, 80,000 EDH rec. Uh, I'm not clear on, does this see play in mono white builds in Legacy?
1: Uh, no, not not really. I mean, I think I've seen some sideboard play of this in the past, just kind of sporadically, but never anything real consistent.
0: Got it. So near mint, uh, extended arts down to 28 listings, no really major uh, inventory other than the gaming company having 24 copies left at 22. So that's the main anchor on the price. And I have a feeling that given the pace of sales, there is every opportunity for over the next 6 to 12 months for these to slowly drain out of the market given the distance from Ikoria crack jobs and allow this to float up from 15 to 30
1: all right yeah i know i i really like this i think the fact that it is a problematic card in some people's eyes makes it less likely to be reprinted um obviously it has the risk associated with it on that but you know i I don't know there's so many bad things you can do with commander like this is easily removed it's a one three Like, play play some interaction in my opinion but yeah, um, if
0: I was on keg, a card like this would never ever 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 get banned. Yeah. No, same same here. Um I, I, I want to play interactive games. I don't mind point removal or sweepers. I don't mind people interfering with my commander because I build my decks to interfere right back. So
1: yeah. uh yeah. So I'm um, curious you often that pick mean premium. Anything. Um you know, I'm curious why you went with the the regular copies versus the um Foil Extended Arts. Foil Extended Arts. Foil
0: Extended art has already been called by me on cast a while back, I'm pretty sure, um, and has already succeeded. This uh, took longer to drain out, as is, you know, typically the case. The Extended Arts tend to drift up kind of in lockstep with the Foil Extended Arts, but the inventory for the FEAs
1: tends to drain faster because there's just less of them. Yeah. And, yeah, just seemed like the right time for the card. So I don't have a pick this week mainly because I've been starting a new job and it's been a little crazy uh, but I do have a card I'll throw out and I want to get your assessment of the you know where to go from it so specifically a okay. Chroma's Will um uh I have a large stack I had a very large stack and I've sold through many of them uh, of the regular copies that I was in on for like a couple bucks I mean they were so cheap now I'm regularly selling them for 15 bucks a pop on TCG Direct um The foil extended arts, which I uh, don't—I only own like one or two copies of—are only 28, uh, which seems cheap relative to the the higher price for the non foils as they keep climbing. So I'm curious of your thoughts on what should be the uh, exit price that you would focus on for the non for the basic version, and whether you think people should be looking at the foil extended art version
0: inventory on the regulars is looking relatively deep but the charts on both foil and regulars have been up 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 all through the last year this time last year well kind of early february 2022 these were as low as five to seven dollars for regulars to foils and now both regulars and foils are converging somewhere in the 13 dollar plus zone so it's it's basically just going to keep working its way up that chart until a secret layer reprint hits it which is i think the most likely and as with the drannith magistrate this is just a question of not if but when yeah you know if it it dodges it all through 2023 then the price action will continue to be positive it's funny you mentioned this card because i just sold a foil extended art at 29 which i'm totally fine with because acquired in japan at like nine dollars or something so nice you know, I'm going to take that exit all day. And generally my strategy with, with foil extended art rares is to uh, sell up the ramp. So one of the things I've been doing with Double Masters 2022 cards that I acquired in Japan cheaply is putting them up at relatively minor profits just to test the waters and make sure that there is latent demand if you're the lowest priced copy. So for instance, I bought uh, Japanese sensei divining tops at $10 a few months ago and posted one for sale at 17.88 or something and it sold over the holidays. So, that's not my target exit for the card. I would like to get $25 plus, but I'm happy to sell a couple at that lower price point as the market is saw, you know, is soft due to high inventory volume to just kind of start mapping my way up the ramp. And and indeed with things like foil extended art Passes Oracle, Underworld Breach, Shadow Spear. I did the same thing. I started selling in the $30 to $40 range after having acquiring under 20 and then sold at you know, 40 50 60 70 working through my stack. And I do that so that I don't get caught out being too greedy. You sacrifice some long-term profit on the stuff that ends up being a winner in the rearview mirror, but you also don't get stuck holding all your inventory. So it's you know, kind of a best of all worlds kind of scenario. In terms of, are you supposed to be buying or selling the Acroma's Will Foil Extended Arts? Let's take a look at how many Foil Extended Art copies are left on TCG Player. Looks like we're looking at Near Mint, 27 listings around that $28, $29 price point. And indeed, it looks like I might be selling a little early because you only have 10 copies or so under 30 and then in the ramp from 30 to 40 is pretty steep. I see a lot of pro traders and known vendors mm-hmm. in the mix there. Yep. I I think my answer is on the foil extended arts, there's probably no huge rush, but if a really nice art version shows up in a secret layer, then you could get disrupted for sure. Okay. So there's, there's some risk in holding. And so I think I like selling at this price point. And if I had a stack of say 20, then I would just look to sell up the ramp where I'm planning on selling one every 15 days or 30 days or something to slowly
1: work my way out of that position yeah so and just for reference i had yeah like i said i had about 150 copies i've sold i think 70 or 80 of those um starting at 10 up to 15 and um, my goal is to get down to 50 and then move up to the 20 price point and hopefully clear out the remaining of my copies i will say I, this is moving so tremendously and that's why it kind of like i started looking at the foil extended arts i just pulled the last month of data the um the regular basic version of Chroma's Will has sold 600 copies on TCG Player Ooh. just for near mint, uh, all of which except one fifteen-dollar or fifteen-copy brick. Who who is that buying at that price? I'm not sure. Um, and then otherwise, it's all like z2 twosies for 600 copies. So this thing is selling like crazy. Yeah, and some of that might be
0: speculation, as people have detected. That it's, the price is moving up oh, and you yeah. don't see any yeah. obvious reprint avenue other than Secret Lair for for the coming year. Right. This is a very good card in the right decks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because you because they, in Ginny Fay, right, I make a whole bunch of cats just by generating treasure tokens off a of Bootlegger's Dash or whatever. And then this for four mana gives everything Flying, Vigilance, Double Strike, Lifelink, Indestructible, and Protection from All Colors, which usually means you Alpha Strike one to two players that turn. Mm-hmm. Uh, so very very good and go wide strategies uh that happen to be white and there are several of those uh around these days yeah
1: I, for I, i've talked a lot about commander legends on the cast um in my short time and you know i'd say these are you know you're starting to see those cards become um you know higher and higher the jewel lotus continues to climb it's up to like 110 now this is up some of the lands are up um you know th- this is this is not an isolated thing, and you know the fact that it's a couple years out of print, or a couple years out uh, since its initial printing, it's been out of print for a little while. Uh, you're starting to see these, and some of the other bigger cards like Jessica's Will got reprints already, which tamps down their, um, you know, prominence as the top card. I think we'll continue to see this for for various cards with that set going forward. I've also
0: got very good premiums on, for instance, German foil extended art, Arcane Signet, Thought Vessel. Command Tower, all sorts of the common and uncommon foil extended arts, which were a unique feature of that set. It's also worth flagging that people were very up in arms about how prone to curling the foils were from that set, and people were thinking like nobody will buy these. That has not been a problem from my vantage point. I've sold tons of them.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the cards are, and and I've never, and more importantly, I've
0: over the course of like maybe 200 relevant sales in foil from that set i have not had a single card returned
1: yeah yeah i I think people know what they're getting i think once these cards get a better premium treatment that's when it'll impact them more right now i think they're willing to put it put up with it um but well i think i think the other thing is that a lot of people play commander privately where
0: marked cards are just not an issue like, you've double-sleeved your thing. Some portion of your deck is a little more curved than the rest. Nobody gives a shit. Like, when we're playing on webcam, not once have we ever been like, wait, wait a second, there's a little bit of curve in that one. Like, <laughs> just nobody cares, right? Yeah. We're just there to have fun. And if it was a comp- if these were competitive-facing cards, I think it would be much more of a problem um, than it actually, in fact, ended up being.
1: You know what's amazing to me is that the number one land currently from the set is the White-Black Land, uh, market price almost ten dollars that is not what i expected you know when you have training center which now has gotten a reprint in the flip uh seeker layer deck rejuvenated springs blue uh, green the blue black underworld stadium i was i'm surprised by that well,
0: the top commander right now is Joda the Unifier, where that card would find a home. Number three is Urza, which is white, is Esper color, so it finds a home there. Number four is Atraxa, so it's in that deck as well. Yeah. Number six is Ur-Dragon, it's there as well. Ishin is number seven, which is uh, Mardu, which would include it. So a fair, a solid chunk of the top ten commanders right now would use that version of the card.
1: Anyway, so, Uh, yeah.
0: Moving along, weekly topics. We've got uh, an announcement that was all over the video gaming industry last couple days that Watsy slash Hasbro had canceled five video game projects that they apparently had in the pipeline. This largely impacted their third-party partners because, of course, Watsy Hasbro has no idea what to do with software or video games. So almost every such project that they work on will have an internal team that is partnered with an external developer to actually bring the game to life. And apparently this affected partners uh, Boston-based Other Side Entertainment and Bellevue, Washington-based Hidden Path Entertainment, both are uh, mid-tier development uh, houses. Uh, none of these games are games we knew about in terms of having there having been any announcements. So presumably they were fairly early on in the development cycle. Uh, there was also apparently 15 job losses at Watsi that were related to this, and though I'm sure the YouTube pundits will make much ado of this development, I would suggest that this is kind of largely a nothing burger. Hasbro has got tried to go hard at many, many digital projects over the last decade. At one point they had a whole digital content studio that was set up. that was supposed to develop a whole bunch of movies and so forth. And that's how you got the battleship movie very awkwardly. And they have almost always underperformed and they have been forced to back off. But but it's not to say that they, all of such endeavors have been failures. In fact, that, you know, the transformers movie franchise, uh, that is their license is one of the biggest selling movie franchises of all time. And even movies like GI Joe, et cetera, did better than they deserve to given how terrible they were. You know, it's disappointing, certainly that we won't have as many options on the, the gaming side, but I'm also of the opinion that they should absolutely be doing this, you know, a refocusing on getting two or three really amazing licensed games out the door, as opposed to, taking some kind of shotgun approach most of their attempts at magic games that were not arena over the last decade have been failures and it would be amazing for them to say nail a chandelier reincarnation at some point and really like knock it out of the
1: park yeah you got to do what you do best, right? And video games clearly isn't Watzky's forte. Um, you say it's not a core Everything thing. except Arena. I, I would argue Arena has been a pretty big failure too, in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously it does fine, but it's it hasn't killed Moto, which which should have happened by now. It never sparked esports like they wanted. It still doesn't have necessary formats. It hasn't really engaged people in high level tournaments like they wanted, you know, I mean, from a, from a variety of ways, even though Arena is better than their other products, that doesn't, you know, it's it's still only okay relative to what it could have been. Yeah, I think that's,
0: yeah, we're, we're saying the same yeah. thing from different angles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, it, it's not that it's a failure. It's a cash cow success that makes a solid chunk of additional revenue, but less profit than they would like in part because the business model on arena is, has lower arpu than magic online because there are many ways to play for free on arena that aren't present on magic online um i've basically been playing for free on arena the entire time and i play all the time
1: um because if you draft well you don't ever have to give them any money which that statement is what makes me think and i'm the same way is does it really make them a lot of money
0: Well, it doesn't make as much money per user, but it did broaden the number of people that were using the platform because there are a lot of people that were turned off by how archaic the Magic Online interface was. Sure. And there are certainly, like, I was playing very little Moto until Arena had been out for about a year. And now I play way more Arena than I ever did Moto. Right. Now, I'm not giving them any money, but there are clearly people that buy cosmetics because every single time I play somebody, they've got a pet. And I don't. Yeah. So the majority of players have spent gems on pets and cosmetics and whatever. I see all sorts of that all the time when I'm playing. I suspect that it's that it has hit a is that reading between the lines on statements they've made to their investors, they've hit a plateau. Yeah. On Arena where they haven't broken into the Hearthstone-esque market where they've captured a broader segment of the gaming industry and ended up, you know, getting, you know, being a top tier, well known mainstream video game, it instead they did had a modest success pushing out their audience. But there's an argument to be made that that may have undermined, along with COVID and along with set design issues, the standard format in paper because right. it's very easy, especially if you're you're drafting a lot, to end up with the cards to play standard on Arena. And during COVID, everybody kind of got out of the habit of playing at their LGS. A lot of LGS is closed due to you know all of the COVID lockdown and restriction-related issues. And some have rebounded. Some have disappeared permanently. And I'm very curious to see where youngest format for Magic and Paper is going to land in the next three to five years, given all of those dynamics together. Yep. Now... The, the other uh, thing we wanted to go over this week was the rest of our 2020... It's supposed to be the 2022 year-end review, but in terms of cards to watch, we're actually going back to summer of 2022, back one year to July of 2021, so that we're looking at uh, specs that have had time to mature. And last week we looked over my stuff and my totals, just to recap... My totals were annualized ROIs of 33.21% on all picks, 118% if you looked at my top two-thirds of picks, and 248% at my top one-third. So this week we're going to look at the pro trader picks. Every few weeks or so we tend to uh, solicit the pro traders to submit their own cards to watch and we include those, usually one per cast when we think get around to doing it. And looking at what the trader selected, there was a total of, let's see here, 30 selections through that time period. And if you looked at all picks, the total cost would have been 328, total revenue would have been 351, average hold time of 216 days, which results in a non-annualized of 7.21, but an annualized of 12.49, which is uh, significantly more modest uh, versus my results. My all-time, all picks was three times the pro trader average. However, not entirely fair, nor is it really apples to apples because, you know, they're sort of our pick, usually my pick, of a pool of options presented from the pro traders. So and there have certainly been many times that we have not used a pick that people have gone on to echo results for in the ProTrader Discord. And it becomes obvious in the rearview mirror that they have presented an excellent pick that wasn't used. So given that it go their picks go through the filter of my selection process for the most part, sometimes Travis, sometimes Cliff. You have to keep that in mind, that they did fine and probably would have done a lot better if we would actually have selected the absolute best pick each week. So there's probably some fail rate built into our bias. Now, if you look at their top two-thirds and top one-third, they go from quite modest to actually quite good. Uh, The top two-thirds was 171.50 into 247.11 in terms of buying one of each. And the annualized on that is 108%. Which is so if you only bought some, you know, two out of every three things selected by the other pro traders, you get up to 108%. And if you manage to filter down to the top one-third, you get to 219%, which is not too far off my total of 248. So from that perspective, pretty solid. Some of the top selections of the year included pro trader Jonath calling out Academy Manufacturer. Uh, foil Extended Arts to go 6 to 20, and they got up to 19 as of last May for 221% uh, raw gains. You had Hall of Heliod's Generosity OBFs from Malu going 5 to 15 was the call. They got up to 12 this October, so 127% gains non-annualized. Osberg called Archon of Cruelty Sketch foils to go 10 to 25. They got up to 22 or so in September. You have Britain calling brig score regulars to go 50, 50 cents to a dollar, and indeed they got to a dollar. That's probably one of those ones where it would have been hard to get out because I suspect buy list has not uh, has not matched yet, but perhaps later uh, in 2023 you'll get an actual exit on those got uh, things like Nihilus calling one of our discord mods calling bloodline keepers and non-foil to go 14 to 30 and they got up to 24 so you didn't quite hit his target but there wasn't a reasonable exit to be had some of the worst of the project trader selections we had uh, pillow fort call Luris the dream den regulars to go 8 to 15 and i believe this was a challenger deck printing that he thought would rebound and instead of going 8 to 15 they got down to a dollar 35 yeah. Yikes. That's yeah, a hard, exactly harsh right. one.
1: This is the one with the uh, new language, with the updated uh, companion yeah. language that never got, really got to use much.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, we had K call washaways to go 250 to 5 out of Vow, and instead they got down to 0.53. We had Carl Choi calling ebb death Dracolich foil borderless to go 20 to 40, and they got down to 7. And sods called Satoru Umazawa BAB foil promo borderless to go four to eight and they got down to two dollars tell you that card at two dollars if you're planning on building ninjas or own ninjas is an automatic buy (laughs) that is excellent art for two dollars uh and should absolutely be included in every ninja's deck all right so moving on over to Cliff's picks from his uh period of time on cast he had 52 picks total and his total cost on all 52 would have been 995.50. Total revenue, if you sold all of those at their peak, uh, or lull would have been 1129 77 His average hold time was 181 days. So his annualized ROI was 29. So not too far off my 33. And then if you look at his top two thirds, he gets up to 109% on his, on his top two thirds, not too far behind my 118. And then on his top one-third, he actually beats me. He gets up to 319, or almost uh, almost 320%, over my 248. And the reason for that is his top one-third average hold time was only 140 days, which was significantly below my hold time. So he had more timely picks that paid off big. Some of those included Wargate regulars going, he called to go, uh, sorry, regular foils from... Avicen, no, not Alara Reborn uh, to go 10 to 30, and it got up to 41 in September. Bone Crusher Giant regular showcase to go 2 to 350, got up to 550. Mystical Dispute foils to go 6 to 20, got up to 13, so not quite all the way there. He had In the Web of War foils to go 12 to 30, got up to 25. The SRAM Senior Artificer OBFs uh, out of Time Spile Remastered to go 15 to 30, and it got almost picture perfect on 30 in September. Patron of the Vein to go 9 to 20, uh, got up to 18 in November. Sarkin Unbroken Foil Borderless from the War of the Spark... Uh, Mythic Edition, I think. Yeah, Mythic Mythic Edition Edition 3, if I'm not mistaken. 35 to 60, got up to 59. So uh, the common theme here is Cliff recognizing near-term trends in EDH commanders and leveraging low-supply cards to get solid returns in relatively short periods which is the kind of thing that pro traders tend to love so I'm sure that they made some decent money on some of these now if we look at some of Cliff's worst picks of the year they would include things like Jukai naturalist foil promos to go 7 to 15 they got down to two dollars goes to show that those LGS foil promos you really need to triple check the overall scarcity as well as the play pattern to make sure that the market's not going to be flooded with them he had ignoble hierarch sketch foils to go seven to fifteen. They are currently at three dollars. Criminally cheap. <laughs> yeah, re- just just ridiculous. I mean, there, part of it is that MH two had a big print run. Part of it is that MH two is an extremely broad set. I mean, something like forty cards from MH two have top aided in modern yeah. tournaments. So there are a bunch of cards that in a in a set with less hits would have seen greater gains, or had they. Re- to a greater degree, restricted the print run of MH2, uh, you would have seen greater gains sooner. Uh, Some of these, if they don't see reprints in the next, you know, one to five years, are certainly going to be big gainers, but it's tough to say which will be which. Uh, Cliff also called out fractured identity foils from Secret Layer to go 8 to 15. They got down to four. Morbid Opportunist foil, silver screen foils to go 25 to 50, and they're currently at 12. I suspect because they were a lot of those silver screen foils have been targeted up the ramp and then natural demand has not supported that and so they have tended tended to backslide when the speculator activity lets off he also called gilded brokers ascendancy foils to go 11 to 20 on the basis that it's kind of an auto include in uh, planeswalkers matters builds like atraxa which is still quite popular these days but they have still gotten down to five dollars for gilded foils which is Probably an attractive buy for the long term, to be honest, because that a gilded foil broker's ascendancy seems like just about the last thing to ever reprint.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: (laughs) Super unique treatment, um, not popular enough anywhere outside of EDH to matter, and it's niche inside the format. Uh, He also called Cabal coffers. uh, I think it's just regulars to go 28 to 50. Keep in mind, coffers was so high heading into the MH2 printing that... As its price collapsed, it started to look like a bargain. But instead of settling in the mid twenties, it's gotten down to the mid teens. It's currently at you know sixteen dollars or so as of September. So uh, a, a lot of the stuff that didn't work out tended to be MH two related. I also see Yavimaya Cradle of Growth on his list uh, to go twenty to forty, but it's still sitting at about nineteen. So some of that stuff's just going to need more time to mature and certainly will carry some reprint risk the longer time goes on. But on the overall, Cliff and I had relatively similar results uh, on the all picks, top two-thirds, top third, and the Pro Shaders were not too far behind us. So more and more evidence stacking up over time that this is a pretty good community to be a part of. And especially if you come in with a critical eye and you are able to filter through all of the various cards that are discussed, you are likely to end up in a pretty strong position.
1: Yeah. And, you know, honestly, the year time horizon is ideal, right? Like we all want to get in six months or in and out in six months or a year. But, you know, sometimes things don't do that, right? And we went through a bunch of them on the cast right now, like Ignoble Hierarch, um, Cabal coffers. Um, I see others on here like Apex Devastator, Yagmaya, um, J- uh, Jala- uh, uh Palace Jailer. You know, there's a lot of things on here that, you know, in the next 12 months, I think they're going to do very well. So even though we're looking at um, a very positive one year time horizon, uh, I think in the next 12 months, we'll see even more gains for a lot of these.
0: It's also interesting because a lot of my best gains are on things I've been holding for two or three years. Oh Um, yeah. A lot of the stuff I've report, I've reported in the sales data reporting channel. Um, And once you analyze them, they're certainly less impressive, but they're still very strong versus say my stock portfolio, which does well as well over time. But you know, I might beat the market by 5% on average or something. Mm -hmm. Whereas with this, I, you know, my magic portfolio tends to beat the market by two or three times. So that doesn't – it would be interesting at some point to go back over, say, a five-year period and see how many of the failures that are flagged, you know, two, three, four years ago end up being wins given enough time and how many of them just sink even further still. Right. Like, is it better – you know, at what point should you be turning the corner and either cashing out for a loss and moving on to the next thing versus being willing to hold? I mean, the same kind of conversation we were having about Chroma's will earlier – the other thing that's kind of absent in all of this data is the the there are many pro traders whose model is completely different than any of this. They are looking for quick flips. They want to get in on the stuff that's spiking right now. They're going to go buy it today locally. They're going to flip it online three days later, and they're looking to get relatively modest gains, usually something like 10 to 40%, but they're doing it in rapid succession, and they're trying to chain those things together to get a really monstrous ROI if they get enough gets right over the course of an entire year and i think that in the grand scheme of things the person that can that does that model and gets it right a really high percentage of the time that's about the biggest roi you could have in a year that's how you could take a thousand dollars and turn it into ten thousand not a thousand into three thousand which would be more typical in my model um but i also suspect that if you looked at say a group of a hundred of those people the vast majority of them would not (laughs) be able to ratchet a thousand to ten thousand you would see a high variety like a a high yaw in terms of results where a large chunk of those people would end up tripping over themselves getting enough things wrong that they end up like net neutral or close to it or even in the negative and then you'd have a few standout performers that were both smart and lucky and killed it all year long so i would i would be fascinated to see a pro trader you know maybe somebody listening to the cast to cough up a spreadsheet of their results of that type just so people could, you know, get another perspective on a, a different uh, mo and see how it, you know, what the potential could look like under that model.
1: Yeah, I mean, everyone has to have their own model that works for them. Um, I mean, just to give you one example, I'm switching to trying. We'll see if it works, but trying to do 100 percent buy list next year, right? And that's mostly by due to not having time to turn around products like I want and be able to kind of, you know, I have the time to do the research, but I don't have the time to do the handling and kind of breaking down and all that. Um, And on top of that, when I looked through my data last year, some of the best ROIs was on long-term things that I picked up over, you know, a three-month period at 30% below retail. Um, And even though it's kind of, you know, a pain in a way for data and tracking and whatever, it leads to uh, higher ROI because not only are you getting on the same cards, but you you're basically breaking even or a little bit above at the start, right? Um, and I can't get the buy list pricing that a major vendor can, right? But even if I'm in twenty percent less than market, that still brings me back to zero. So any uh, after fees and shipping and everything, so anything above that will be um, net profit. And so I don't need a card to go a hundred percent to make 50%, I can have it go 50% and make 50%. So, you know, and I've used many other models throughout the years. So whether, you know, you're quick flipping or you're long-term buy and hold, or you're doing geographic arbitrage from other countries, um, you know, figure out what your lane is and really lean into it because you want to be an expert in what you're doing and you can't do all these different approaches at simultaneously.
0: Yeah. And I'm, you know, we talked last week about my results for 2022 on eBay. And I went through my numbers this week for the other two things. Uh, well, I, I have two models, buy specs locally, and then there's there's international arbitrage, but that also feeds into just selling online or selling locally. And then there, I, there is a buy list component to my action, which is probably about maybe 20% of total sales at this point. ROI tends to be very, very high on it because that's like where I'm buying bricks of 50 or 100 and tends to be, when I'm buy listing, because I only sell individual items if they're $10 or above. Mm-hmm. And my average sale was what mid-80s or whatever we were talking yeah. about last week. The stuff under $10 by necessity is buy list. Because I'm not going to list a $5 card on eBay. I have no interest in packing that package. So if I have something like a Goblin Engineer that I'm in on at $1. ten, and then CK this fall posts it at... 278 or something, and I've got 100 copies sitting in a acrylic box, that's exactly the kind of thing I'm buy listing that I have no interest in selling on eBay. And so that tends to encompass most of, of my model, not including all of the business side stuff like, you know, related to MTG price and the podcast and whatever. Heading into 2023, I expect my modus operandi to be much more, you know, exactly the same kind of thing. So far, despite there being all sorts of Reddit posts and blog posts and stuff floating around about how the collectibles industry has seen a major downturn this year. From my perspective, a lot of that still just looks like not so much a downturn as a coming off a inflated high from the year prior. And also vendors struggling with reconciling the inventory management heuristics that they used for arguably decades in the booster fund era where Lots and lots, there are tons, of, a higher pace of reprints, a higher pace of new cards, much more overhead at the LGS level in terms of managing all of that and them needing to figure out a method of adjustment. But from my perspective, as someone who has relatively contained inventory, no staff, low overhead, basically working from my living room and in the wee hours when I'm watching Netflix or responding to emails or whatever and I'm just stuffing envelopes, nothing has really changed. I mean, the, the premium side of the market that I handle And address seems to be business as usual. Now, if I saw eBay sales fall off 25% in the first quarter of 2023 versus the two or three years prior, then I will certainly raise a red flag. But so far, it's business as
1: usual. Uh, I don't know about you. My sales already just since the turn of the new year have been pretty good. Um,
0: I, I actually saw much higher sales through the holiday season yeah. than I was expecting.
1: Yeah, the holiday was okay, and then for whatever reason, I, I don't know, if people kind of said, "Oh, it's the new year, let's do something." But I've had a number of sales that surprised me, um, which is great. I, I hope my, my
0: read my read was Christmas money getting spent. Sure, but I can see that hard to say. Well,
1: uh, we'll but normally, I, normally this
0: is a re- yeah, true. I mean, I can't. I'll tell you if you want to get prepped for. Ma- optimizing twenty twenty three, if you're worried that there is a general recession in collectibles but you have a lot of inventory, get it listed. Because you do not want to miss out on the late February through June period where the majority of magic gets sold.
1: Yep. Yep. I agree. All right. Where can people find you online, my friend? Yeah, folks can find me on my Twitter at okoassassin, and otherwise uh yeah, on this cast. How about you, James?
0: You guys can find me on Twitter at MDGCritic as well as via my occasional articles on mggprice.com and my constant haunting of the ProTrader Discord. I would also like to remind our listeners to check out the mggprice.com ProTrader service for just $9.99 a month or $109.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best mgg finance minds in the business, low-cost group buys, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. We were just wrapping up the group buy for Dominaria remastered tonight at a very attractive price, and those should be shipping out very shortly to get people into people's hot little hands.
1: All right, get those force of wills. That's, uh, there you go. I, although I do like the art from the other, the the whatever, the it was last printing. Yeah, I guess Double Masters a little bit better. Double but Masters but VIP. They're both good. They're both good. Anyway, well, once again, MTG uh, Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best of the gathering singles, a sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at coolstuffinc.com to save 5% on your order and support this podcast. James, that brings us to the end of another episode. Really enjoyed our discussion as always. Thank you, thank you, Derek. Happy New Year to you
0: and your family, and we'll see all of you next week on another episode of MDG Bass Finals.